Moncrief on News Talk. Now, a new display at Kilmainham Jail Museum marking 100 years since the last prisons were held in Kilmainham Jail has just opened. Uh, the final prisons were held from October 1923 to January 24 and they include some of the most prominent leaders of the Republican side from during the Civil War, including Ernie O'Malley, Austin Stack, Patter O'Donnell. Brian Crowley is the collector's curator at Kilmainham Jail and joins me now in studio. Brian, good afternoon to you. Afternoon, Tom. Uh, lovely to see you. Yeah. What, why exactly did the jail close in the first place? Um... Well, interestingly, Kilmainham had actually closed as a criminal jail since 1910. Uh, there'd been a huge fall in uh, prison numbers in Ireland, really in the la- from the latter end of the 19th century, largely down to the famine and immigration. So Kilmainham had been given over then to the military. So it's used by the British military then in 1916 in the War of Independence. And then uh, after independence, then it's given over to the Irish Free State. And during the Civil War then, they uh, because they are arresting such large amounts of people, they reopen Kilmainham Jail and use it throughout the Civil War as uh, at one stage as a male prison, but also as a female prison as well. Right. So these, the, the, the very last prisons are pe- prisons from during the, 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 um, the Civil War era. Yeah, era, yeah. yeah. So um, who have we got? So, uh, so you've people like Frank Gallagher, you've Ernie O'Malley, um, you have uh, Tom Derrick, uh, David Robinson, uh, and I suppose most famously, Eamon de Valera. Um, he comes a little bit later uh, in October. Um, so the the jail had been used to house women for most of 1923. Um, they move the last of the women, they either release them or remove them to the North Dublin Union um, at, towards the end of September. And then in October, the some of the uh, Republican prisoners go on hunger strike, largely demanding that they be released because the Civil War had, I suppose, been over since since May. Um, and they start their hunger strike um, uh, on the 14th of October. And then on the 20th, they move what looks like some of the leading figures. Yeah. Uh, so people like those people I mentioned, also people like kind of Pater O'Donnell. And this hunger strike continues for 41 days. So Pater O'Donnell, one of the things we have relating to him is actually his will, he wrote his will a few days after starting and he kind of said, you shouldn't start a hunger strike without the expectation of, of death. Um, and we think that that's what they were using Kamenum for at the time to maybe isolate uh, the leadership uh, figures. Um, so they arrive on the 20th and then we think maybe unbeknownst to them um, on uh, sometimes towards the very end of the month, Eamon de Valera is transferred to Kilmainham. But while most of the prisoners are in the east wing of the jail, de Valera is completely isolated on his own in the older west wing. Um, and we have the original instructions given to Governor Corrie uh, and their special instructions about how to care for de Valera. And one of the things they emphasise is no one is to see him other than the officers. Right. Um, and Why uh, is that? Uh we I, we think that we that there were there was a fear that maybe that the prisoners if they were able to communicate that they'd be able to organise okay. better we think and also I think they're just trying to kind of isolate De Valera and stop him having any communication with his followers okay. or the other people. He's he's not having the worst of times though, is he in person? He's playing handball. He's playing yeah. So he's there on his own. So he starts to play handball uh, and he plays handball with the governor, right, Governor Corey, which is kind of interesting. A lot of. The that, prisoners. That sound, sounds like it says a lot. What? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I, I think it says a lot about Cory as well. And actually, even the, because he's governor when the women are there and they, they, they're very, um, very kind about him and, you know, they, they feel he's a fair man. So uh, they used to play uh, handball out in the yards of the jail. And when the 
occasionally then the balls would go over the, the wall and over the, eventually they were connected connected by a family called the Fluids who lived next door to the jail. And uh, years later, when um, I think probably when De Valera was president, they gave them to uh, De Valera. They'd had them before that in their China cabinet and De Valera then presented them to the jail. So we have these kind of... The actual handballs. The actual handballs. And some of them yes. are intact and some of them, you know, you can see they've been out in the elements and they've yeah. kind of collapsed. They look a bit like, you know, the, the moons of, uh, of Saturn or something. Right. Hilarious that those little things will yeah. still survive this time. Yeah. Amazing. Tell me about some of the other stuff that you have. It sounds fascinating. Um, so one of the other really interesting items is we have um, a deck of playing cards. Uh, they were sent in to the prisoners by a woman who ran a news agency on, on Dorset Street along with newspapers and books and uh, at a certain point in early November the 22 of the men who are on hunger strike they start to sign them so Austin Stack signs one uh, one of them is signed by Simon Donnelly and interestingly Simon Donnelly and Ernie O'Malley are in the prison in 1923 and they'd escaped when it was a, a British military prison in 1921 uh, um, so we have uh, these 22 cards and because they have um, handwriting on them. We very yeah. rarely display them all. But this year for the centenary, we said we'd put all 22 on display together. Why would they have been signing them? Interest, one of the interesting things about all the prisoners from that period and even the War of Independence is they're very conscious that they're in a historic moment and they're conscious as well of maybe trying to, I suppose, make a record or memorialise. So we have lots and lots of autograph books that they create. Um, um, they even arrange events almost to commemorate the fact that they're there. They know they're in a moment of history. And the thing in prison is you have a lot of time to think about it. As right. well. um, so we have lots of that kind of thing. Oh my God. Um, if, if it had been 100 years forward, they'd be yeah. <laughs> filming themselves and WhatsApping. And <laughs> as, as a museum curator, I'm very, uh, I'm very pleased because actually I was kind of, that's a wonderful object <laughs> to leave to uh, museum creators. Um, you also have uh, a lot of the books they were reading. Yeah. I found this fascinating. You just, uh, yeah. They're well read men, aren't they? They, they are. And uh, we're very fortunate that Ernie O'Malley wrote a, a memoir, The Singing Flame. And he's a very erudite uh, um, man who loves kind of books and art and culture. So he writes a a lot about, you know, the books he's reading. So he reads Mark Twain and he also uh, reads Moby Dick, but also the Tom Bocunia. Um One of the things that we got a lot of interest this week on social media, uh, we uh, posted his quote about how Jane Austen seemed to him the be- one of the best people to read while on hunger strike in a jail. And he said she's, because she's such a good writer, but also the, the stories you have are quite uneventful. So I suppose yeah. because of all the drama around him, right. Jane Austen is this kind of release. But one of the really interesting things as well is he mentions um, how he can escape into his imagination while he's in prison by reading books. And he reads a lot of kind of travel logs and and histories. And he mentions uh, that in his imagination, he goes to the low countries, to the Netherlands, uh, as their people are fighting for independence against the Spanish. And one of the other objects that we have is a two volume biography of uh, a guy called John of Barnevald, who was uh, a Dutch leader in the 17th century against the Spanish. Uh, and clearly it's being lent to Ernie O'Malley by Austin Stack. So they're obviously swapping right. books around. We also have books belong to Ernie O'Malley as well. We have uh, some poetry by a guy called Francis Thompson. He's a kind of Catholic mystic, uh, yeah. also at one point a homeless opium addict. Uh, but he's very popular because of, I think, because of his Catholicism. But one of the books I was most fascinated at that we only uh, got this year is a it's a biography of Lord uh, Shaftesbury, the 19th century politician. And it was sent in to David Robinson. 
David Robinson is really interesting himself. He His father was at one point the rector of Delgany and later the dean of St. Anne's in Belfast. And he went to fight in the First World War and he was highly decorated. He was, he was given the DSO. Uh, but then he was also friends with Erskine Childers and Robert Barton of Glendalough House and became a ardent Republican and was then one of the prisoners in the jail um, uh, on hunger strike. And this book, uh, he writes in it, was sent into him by uh, Lady Astor. So Lady Astor is probably most famous now. She's the first woman to take her seat in Westminster. Not the first woman to be elected. That was right. Countess Markovich. But she's the first woman to take her seat in Westminster. And she is like a true blue Tory. She's very much on the right of the Tory party, even at that time. Uh, but obviously she, they were friends as well. And there are letters that she writes to connections she has in the Free State Government trying to get David Robinson's release. So it's interesting that even though politically they've completely diverged those kind of bonds of friendship and maybe of class yeah. are there. And definitely of all the people I thought were going to be sending books into Republican prisoners in Kilmainham in the you Civil War. That. Not not Nancy Astor. <laughs> no, it's funny when you look back, you would think they're from such separate worlds. Yeah. Even a, a highly decorated British soldier um, being a Republican yeah. is another part of that. Yeah. And then, well, the Lady Astor part is just the icing of the cake. Yes. <laughs> isn't yes. it? 100%. He's also reading, it seems to you O'Malley doing most of the reading, isn't it? He's reading Chaucer and Shakespeare as well and Wordsworth. Yeah. Um, and we also, we got a letter that he wrote to a woman called Kay Brady, who coincidentally had also been a prisoner in the jail in 1923. Uh, and she was sent by the Republican movement to uh, New York. And he wrote to her in New York with this basically a shopping list of books that he wants her to send him. And he's looking for art books and literature. I think with er Ernie O'Malley as well, uh, and with a lot of these men, um, a lot of them have kind of missed out on their kind of, I suppose, their university years. And I think he's anxious to kind of make up for lost ground and kind of read the books that he feels, you know, a cultured person of the time needs to have read. Right. Uh, but also he's just, a, he seems to be just a voracious reader. I know, you know, he's, uh, he's on, he doesn't have a lot else to do in prison, but it's amazing just how many books he gets through. Um, though in his memoir, it, it is clear that at a certain point, as the hunger strike continues, that he's unable to concentrate enough to read either. Sure. Um, and he's, he, you know, he also talks about kind of this hallucination um, that is part of the later stages of a hunger strike. And the name of his memoir, The Singing Flame, comes from this hallucination he has. There were gas jets in the cells that, that would have provided light. And he talks about how this flame starts to dance around inside in the cell with him. Okay. And he's completely disorientated. Wow. Uh, and I said, like 41 days is yeah. quite a long time to go um, without food. Um, right. Uh, it's amazing you have the, these artefacts after yeah. this time. Looking down that list, you, you do get a strong uh, impression of people who are happy to overthrow British rule, but weren't going to over overthrow British literature um, yes. under any circumstances, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is great. Um, they also, it, it, the last few months were trailed over Christmas. So how was Christmas marked? So by Christmas, the, the, the uh, hunger strike had ended um, in November. So I think they went kind of hell for leather then for Christmas. So we have this beautiful kind of scroll that they all signed, a lot of them signed. Uh, they um, got 
the tables out of the cells and made up one big table to have a big kind of feast or banquet for Christmas in the east wing of Kamalem Jail, which you know a lot of the listeners will have known from either visiting it or that's the main that's the main one the museum when you walk in. Yeah, yeah, and that's the one that you see in. in kind of Michael Collins and the, yeah. in the name of the father and Paddington too. Um, but they also decorate the jail, which I'm very taken with, with uh, holly and, and boughs of pine. So the idea of like, you know, this very severe space being decorated for Christmas. Um, but they, we also have like Christmas cards that are sent in to a prisoner called Joe McHenry from his family. And, we, you know, we have these kind of letters as well that people are just sending in family members who are just kind of concerned about them. And, you know, Ernie O'Malley talks about it as well. Like he, this is his second Christmas um, away from his family inside in prison. So um, I think they're trying to make it as kind of jolly an experience yeah. as they can. And who's the, who's the actual last prisoner? Well, this is one of the really interesting things about this uh, display because, uh, and I suppose the decade of centurions, because we kind of return to a lot of things to try and work out for, uh, for definite because for years there were kind of suggestions it was Eamon de Valera. But actually, from what we can see now, um, the last prisoner was Ernie O'Malley. He writes a letter uh, to Molly Childers, to Erskine Childers' widow, saying that he's alone in the prison. And he says, I quite like that. Um, he said he's, he, he's taken with it and you know speaking myself as someone who spent a lot of lockdown on my own in Kilmainham Jail I can see what he's talking about um, so that he writes that on the 11th of uh, May and then there's newspaper reports that the last prisoner to be released from Kilmainham uh, on the 14th uh, of January sorry is, um, is Ernie O'Malley so we think that That's he's it. the last uh, prisoner and after I suppose like 128 years since 1796 and all the yeah important, significant figures from Robert Emmett through to Parnell through to the 1916 leaders. Um, It is, you know, kind of momentous that he is the last prisoner. He's quite ill, even aside from the uh, hunger strike. He'd been very badly wounded when he was captured and uh, he actually had to be looked after by the other prisoners and he was being transferred to St. Brickens Military Prison. So that's why they had to wait a little while. God, there's such fascinating stories. Yeah. Every brick of, of the jail seems to tell yeah, a fascinating yes. story. Do, do, do you think is, is that a, and, and it's just the history part of why it means so much to Irish people? It, it really does have a very special place in the heart of the nation, doesn't it? Yeah, well, it, it, it kind of it reminds me sometimes of kind of like, like Zelig or, you know, yeah. uh, or Forrest Gump. <laughs> Every major event in Irish history, Camelham Jails seems somehow to be involved in it um and I, I suppose it it really has kind of captured the captured the imagination of um of the Irish public and I suppose today like it encapsulates so much just of not only of our political history yeah. but also kind of hidden histories of people like uh ordinary prisoners of poverty in Dublin and Ireland at the time the history of again of women who were kind of marginalized in the 19th century uh, LGBT people as well mm. like all these I sometimes say that Kalmanum all the stories that uh, society doesn't want to talk about become visible within a prison so it has that aspect Absolutely. to its history but also you know the fact that it is you know the the location of these key events I, yeah. I think particularly 1916. Yeah, absolutely. It's so resonant. It's incredible. Um, and when is it on? Is it on at the moment? So it's on, uh, it's on at the moment uh, yeah. and it continues into the, the middle of, uh, of next year. Uh, and running concurrently with it, we also have a, a major exhibition on uh, the women prisoners who were kept in the jail in 1923. And again, it's really interesting to see there's kind of lots of crossovers as well in terms of connections between those female prisoners and, and these sure. last prisoners. God, it sounds great. Hope to see it very soon. Brian, thank you very much That's for great. coming thank in. Thank you very much. And, uh, hope you'll catch up with that again very soon. Brian Crowley, the collector's curator at Clemenum. 
Moncrief. Weekdays at 2 p.m. on News Talk.